Thank you. Good morning. Well, this morning we are in uh, Ephesians chapter 4 as we continue in our series, Earthen Glory, from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And last Sunday we looked at verses 1 through 6. It was all about oneness in Christ, the unity that he creates out of our calling and our pursuit of love for the Lord that, uh, that overflows to all those around us and therefore we're humble and patient and gentle and forbearing. And that striving for oneness is grounded in the fact that there's one faith, one Lord. All of those seven ones that are the core of our faith. And then Paul in verse 7 says, but we have been given grace. In fact, the very first word is the word one, to each one. It's uh, even more pronounced in the Greek language. It seems so awkward to us. There's no way to translate it properly, but it's just to one each. (laughs) This grace has been given. So that's where we want to pick up. And if you have your New Testament open, surely you do. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Here's the picture of a great conqueror. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints, the holy ones, those who are dedicated, devoted to Jesus Christ, his followers, to equip them for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way unto him who is the head, unto Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when every part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is one of my favorite pictures. 
This is Rene Magritte. That's my Pepe Le Pew pronunciation of his French name. I'm not French. And this is called La Clairvoyance. And that is a self-portrait of the artist. And he's looking at an egg, but he's painting a bird in flight. The word clairvoyance, uh, we associate with mystical sight. But it just means in French, clear sight. Clear sight. It's a good synonym, especially with this picture in mind, at least in my opinion, for faith. That's what I think of. That ability to look at ordinary things and see potential. To see what can come of it. In the case of creation, because of the way God designed it, but in the case of our Christian life, because of the way God is at work. Magritte sees more than an egg. And so there's a commentary here on the nature of an artist. But I think, in a way, this can serve as an example, an analogy or metaphor of the way we as Christians, by faith, ought to be able to see the operation of God in the ordinary things of our world. Let me ask you a question. What do you see when you look at yourself? I know, initially, yeah, you see all those things you don't like. But more deeply, what do you see? Do you see your potential? Or do you just see your limitations? And through comparison with others, are you acutely aware of your shortcomings or what you aren't rather than what you are? in Christ and what God intends you to be, even has empowered you by faith through his Spirit, empowered you to be. Because of clairvoyance, clear sight through faith, you should see more than you think others see in you. It's not their eyes, but Jesus' eyes that see you clearly. And by faith, you ought to be able to see yourself as Jesus sees you. And you can know how he sees you through his word. And here is a profound, profound example God sees you as more. 
And we have seen from chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and now into chapter 4 that you have a place, an important place in the entire plan of God. And if you doubt that for even a second, all you have to do is think of the value that God placed upon you when he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem you at the cost of his life. You are worth a son, the son, the priceless, inestimable valued son. And you have a place and a part and a potential in his master plan. One person, one person armed with belief can make a big difference. That's the power of faith. When it is focused and placed in the person of Jesus Christ, the substance and truth of Jesus Christ revealed. Everybody has faith. And if there's a problem that is hindering and hampering the church, it's that God's people put their faith in everything but him. They're not willing to take risks of faith. They're not willing to take his word to heart and step out. They're not willing to believe, to see clearly how God wants to use you and me in his master plan. We're, we're busy believing and shaping and conforming our lives to the powers and the pushes and the influences and the values, the gold and the silver and the treasures and aspirations of this world. And we are starving as a church because of it. A church global. A church of great potential. A church of great power. The very power of God in the Holy Spirit. That is the prime mover of the church. How much could one person, one person who truly believes Jesus Christ, takes him at his word, steps out where they're at, what that one person could do in terms of influence and example, hope and belief. What if, what if not just one, but two? What could two people do? Or five? What would happen if an entire church, an entire people who named Jesus Christ Lord, if they lived up to their potential and they operated in the power of the Holy Spirit, even if we just upped our game 
I know that we tend to focus on what we can't be, and we would be, you know, immediately aware of all those little short... That's, that's what the cross's power is. Just put that stuff behind you and get back in the game and get to doing it. Live in faith. Live in faith. What a glorious church the church would be. What Paul wants us to believe in these verses, what he wants us to see clearly in these verses is that the body of Christ, the church, is not something we go to, but something we are. He wants us to see this clearly, to see ourselves not in the eyes of others, but in the eyes of God. Not our imagination, but God's creative imagination in Christ, purposed before the foundation of the world, that all things should be summed up in him. And he is planted in the midst of this chaos of a world. He is planted in his people, in his church, in us. I wasn't born a pastor. I didn't even want to be a pastor. I mean, you know, not in that sense. Maybe in the sense that you think about me, I don't know. To me, pastors were kind of creepy, strange people. They weren't normal. They weren't natural. They weren't real human. And I didn't want anything to do with the church. So even in my teens, I walked away. It broke my mom's heart. And yeah, just a bunch of hypocrites. All I saw was negative. What they couldn't be until Jesus Christ got a hold of me. On a canal bank, I made my decision for Christ. It must have been about 9 o'clock at night, all by myself. At the end of a long walk, and I walked home a different guy. And the heart of this new life was a simple question. How can I do this by faith? How can I do this by faith? How can I do this by faith? I didn't know all the things that I know today. I didn't know all the things that most, if not all of you know. All I knew was Jesus was real in me, and I needed to approach each and every circumstance and situation of my life, even the ones that were so familiar that I could do them in my sleep. But now I had to ask myself, how can I do this by faith? That is, how can I trust you? How can I step outside of my old tired ways and do this the way you would want me to do, O oh Lord? And it all began. And I remember, I didn't want to go to church. Jesus and I were just fine. We were a happy couple. It was a long, long date. And weeks passed, and a girl that I was dating invited me to church. 
wasn't Shelly. Her name was Diane. She didn't know of the decision I had made. She herself was kind of poking around in Christian things. I said, well, I'm really happy for you. But she kept inviting me, and so I went. But all I saw was the negatives and the things that I didn't want to be associated with, things that I didn't want to kind of get on me, you know? Like if you rub up against something that's really dirty. Not that, not that the church is dirty, but you know what I'm saying. Dusty. And this went on until it, the Lord impressed upon me in the clearest possible terms, John, you call me Lord, but you don't want to associate with my people. And that changed everything. And he impressed upon me, John, if you don't like what you see going on because you think it's wrong or wrong-headed, then you need to get in there and set an example. You get in there and be an influence. You get in there and make a difference. And that's what I began to do. And look what happened. You see, I had to realize that the body of Christ was my responsibility because I am the body of Christ. And you are too. And that's what Paul is emphasizing here. But not just emphasizing. He's trying to implant within our breasts, our souls, a dream. The very dream of God that is not just a pipe dream. It's the product of what he has done in Jesus Christ. The body of Christ is every believer's responsibility. Because we are the body of Christ. Let me just give you a quick you know, you may want to turn around and teach some of these things, so I want you to always have some really corresponding sense to what's going on in the passage. In verse 7, he says, To each one, grace is given according to the measure of the gift of Jesus Christ. That's verse 7. And then in verses 11-12, he gives us the purpose of this giving of this gift. And then... In verse 13, the plan. This is really the objective. And verses 13, 14, 15, and 16 are all about the plan. In fact, verse 14, 15, and 16 amplify and explain verse 13. Let me show you. Verse 7 is the provision. To each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Verses 11 and 12 is the purpose. It was he who gave, Jesus who gave, to equip. There's the purpose. For the purpose of equipping the saints for what? The work of ministry that is 
to build up the body of Christ and the plan until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, a mature person, a mature body. Attaining the measure of Christ's full stature. His provision, his purpose, his plan. His provision is our provision. This is a part of seeing ourselves clearly, that we are gifted by Jesus himself to play an instrumental role in the health and well-being and the maturation of the, of the body of Christ, the church. In verses 8, 9, and 10, this is grounded in Psalm 62, verse 18, when he talks about, in the imagery of the first exodus, Jesus Christ now, so to speak, fulfilling the story of God's first exodus, the triumph of God, and now a greater triumph in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection for this grand purpose, to make a new people. Just as he brought them out of captivity, he delivered them, he redeemed them out of Egypt and brought them into a new land. And he made them a people unto himself. That's exactly what God is doing in Jesus Christ with the scope of the whole world in view. And so Paul wants to ground this gift-giving in the massive conquest of Jesus Christ. Now, I can't help but think of the Ephesians who are... Ephesus is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. And if you were in Ephesus, I mean, it would be like living in Washington, D.C., our closest. I mean, that's the... Maybe there's another city in the United States that has so many columns and marble monuments. But that would be what Ephesus is like. Constant exposure to edifices of magnificent grandeur dedicated to the array, the pantheon of the gods. All in the service of the Roman Empire. And the reaches of the Roman Empire are so vast, these people can't know it, but they have triumphs so that they can kind of bring, they bring things back. They bring back captives to the city to show them what they have done. They bring back exotic foreign animals, and they ride in triumph with beautiful white steeds and gold and the army marching along in its colors. They are triumphant. Anyone reading from this period would see in Jesus Christ one greater than Augustus, the emperor of Rome, 
or any emperor in his shadow. And they would see the vast scope of his conquest. And it is out of those treasures that Jesus equips, provides what his people need. Now he says, he went up and came down. And this is mystified. Verse 9 is one of the real mysteries of all of this letter. And there are lots of opinions. But I just want you to understand that what we have here is a picture of Jesus' earthly ministry and his exaltation for sure. But the order of things is interesting. He went up and he ascended far above the heavens, which makes this a conquest greater than any we can imagine. But then it says he went down. And that's the mystifying part, the order of things. But we do know from Acts and other places, from Paul's writings, that this notion of going down may be the idea of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Not to diminish in any way the real life of Jesus Christ, the real death of Jesus Christ, the real resurrection of Jesus Christ, but emphasizing here that in coming down, Jesus has given his Holy Spirit, and we are to know that that Spirit is the very presence of Jesus, the reality of Jesus in our lives. And it may be for that reason that we read at the end of verse 9, excuse me, verse 10, that he might fill all things, giving us a real sense of who we are and our power in Christ, his provision. Verse 10, as I said, uh, emphasizes that we are a part of Christ fulfilling all things. I can't help, as I said, but think of how the Ephesian believers would read this. But in my own experience, uh, they're they're more closer to home. When we came to Visalia, uh, we looked for a long time to find a place to live. And we had a, a wonderful realtor who showed us all kinds of properties in all necks of the woods, but she showed us some, some houses, and they were on big lots, big lots, and uh, they were nice places, but they would require a great deal of work, and I was, I, I, I was not in a position to give it the time to, to really bring it up to speed, and of course, we like fixer-uppers because most homeowners want to kind of put their own imprint. So, you know, when you buy a house, you, can, you have the deed. You legally own it, but that house can go to seed if you don't invest in it, if you don't put anything into it, if you don't put your touch on it. Now, just think of the Roman Empire, but even greater, think of the conquest of Jesus Christ. He's trying to do a fixer-upper. He wants to put his imprint on this property. He wants to put his personality and character into his conquest. 
It's not just the borders. It's what he's occupying that he's working in. And that's you and me, and that is the church. That is what he has given us in the provision. The purpose becomes our purpose in verses 11 and 12. And he talks about these different positions of responsibility. And he, of course, starts with apostles and prophets and evangelists, and then goes on to pastor teachers. That's not the whole list. And we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you read that, you'll read all about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And it is, by the way, the Holy Spirit that distributes the gifts, which would make sense if there's an illusion and nod to the fact that even though he's ascended, he's also descended in the power of the Holy Spirit. And then also in 1 Corinthians 12, there's a great deal, the whole chapter, in fact, dedicated to gifts. But here Paul's emphasis is that that those who are gifted, gifted people, you are gifted. You are gifted for a purpose, and that's his emphasis here, that we are to equip each other for one ultimate goal, to build each other up, to be bodybuilders, not sculptors, builders, edifiers, encouragers, strengtheners. I was not born a pastor, I told you, and I was not born a pastor teacher. I started out just like everyone else, a minister, each and every person. That's one of the confusion when we talk about pastors as ministers, because everyone in the body is a minister, and you are a minister. If you don't see yourself that way, you'll always be an egg. You'll never be a bird in flight. If you don't really begin to see your potential with the very imagination of God, you'll always just be an egg. And God intends you to be so much more. And you will realize heights of spiritual life and excitement and joy and meaning and purpose when you begin to live, not just for yourself, putting your faith in the ways of the world, but living your life as a minister of Jesus Christ, knowing that each and everything you do by faith in his power is intended to enforce, reinforce, strengthen, and build the body. I didn't start as a pastor or teacher. I just started as a minister. We all are ministers, and we never outgrow that because we serve the body. But it is a reciprocal and mutual exercise. And in building and serving, we are also being built and served. And it is a rich and powerful experience. And this plan is ultimately that we should see this incredible masterpiece as the plan for our lives. His plan becomes our plan. And to do that, we need to envision the Christ-like church. The goal is in verse 13, as I mentioned. Verse 14, then he says, no longer. Remember when we looked at Philemon, Uketi, 
This is the word ukete. No longer. No more. Little children. Uh, some read babes or infants. It's, it's, a, it's that age range where there's some flexibility but great immaturity. <laughs> and I think of a toddler, you know, because they're unstable and they can fall over so easily. You, there you go, but then they get going a little too fast and fall on their face, or they turn sideways, or they rock backward and they fall. It is cute, unless it's harmful, unless you're doing that where you're an adult, a mature chronological adult. And Paul mashes together three ideas here in verse 14. Children, boats, and con artists. It's the funniest mashup I've ever seen. Because he starts off, he says, children, or little children, or toddlers, or babes, those would all be uh, legitimate translations. And then he immediately talks about waves and winds. So now you're picturing a boat without a rudder on a sea being battered by waves. And then he turns to the very word dice, which is translated deceit, because dicing games were big in the Roman Empire, but they were also the source of a lot of trickery and deception. In other words, scam and con artists. And so in this mashup, Paul is saying quite effectively, don't be like an immature little toddler, don't be like a boat on the sea without a rudder, and don't be like a, a mark for a scam artist who's naive and taken advantage of. But on the contrary, and how does this come about? When you and I are building up, this is a great truth. You will grow in Christ like you've never grown before when you start building up the body. And what is that? How do you do that? Well, there's a, the sky's the limit. Think everything you do, if you do it by faith. But there are some focuses. When you begin to invest in other people's lives intentionally, deliberately, we call it discipling. People in your lives, if you're parents, you have children. If you're children, you have parents. You have neighbors. You have friends. You have people at the church. You have acquaintances and associations. Get more deliberate and intentional about what you're doing with your life as you have influence on those people. Get into an R group and influence them for Christ's sake. Work with children. Go on one of our missions trips. Get involved in the community in the ways that we do. There are a range of things, and there's not just one for all time. But when we begin to get intentional, then we start to grow because we've got to grow. We've got to get into the Word. We've got to be praying because these people are looking to us for that spiritual influence. And it's the most energizing way to live. Mature adults, literally, he says, let us grow up truthing in love. Because the word translated speaking the truth could well be translated doing the truth. In fact, the kind of 
Hebrew, Old Testament, or Semitic background is the idea that truth isn't just propositional. It's a life that's trustworthy and dependable and constant. Truth is the idea of a straight line without warp or woof. Truth is something that you can take to the bank because that person is going to be that way. We call it sometimes character. Sometimes we call it integrity. It's a life that can be depended upon because it is true in word and deed. That's one of the principal ways in which we grow up. And this truth, most of all, is not just head knowledge about the truth of Jesus Christ, but heart knowledge. And it's not just truth out there in this relative world, but it is the truth of the gospel and our Creator, our God. So, thinking about René Magritte and clairvoyance, and him looking at that egg and painting a bird in flight. Can you see your new life? Does the truth of God's word create vision for you? Can you see your new life in this bread and this cup? Can you see what the bread means to you? Yes, it's just a wafer. But can you see forgiveness? Can you see that yesterday and the day before, or even early this morning is past, and God does not hold you accountable. He's forgiven it that you might turn about and live this new life that he died to grant you in Christ. Can you see the repair of a relationship that's broken? Can you see a new start? All these things are here. That's what this represents and more. And this cup, yeah, yours is just a little plastic one, but can you see in this cup, not the shape or the quality of the material, but the new covenant, a new relationship with God, and more, a new beginning, a new chance for you, a new chance for that other person, a new hope, a new way of looking at, at things that are old and tired to you, a husband or spouse. We could talk on and on about the ways that this bread and this cup represent far more than just a wafer and some grape juice. Because this wafer and this grape juice represents Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, his love for you, his life purpose fulfilled for you. Will you pray with me?
Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and your Word, your Spirit, your plan, your purpose, and provision. As we take this bread and cup, electrify the dream that you want and have planted in our hearts, activated by faith and the work of your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name.